This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Dwayne Bice. Dwayne Bice, pitcher, California Angels, card number 649. All right, Dwayne Bice. Only two syllables in that name, and that's far fewer than I thought there would be, David, so I cannot wait to get into this one. But before we get to that, we did have a special Halloween item to share. Friend of the show, at Tim Briggs here, sent in a couple of special cards. He's He sent in so many through the course of the series, David. But this one for Halloween I thought was very nice. Tim adapted a couple 1988 Tops cards, and two of our favorites, for the spooky season. And we will post them on Twitter and, and on our Facebook page. And they feature two demonic figures from the 1988 Tops podcast canon. One of them, Burt Blylevin, famous for the hot foot, setting his teammates' shoes on fire using a book of matches and chewing gum. Burt Blylevin with fireball eyes and flames just licking up from the bottom of the card as if the entire world has been engulfed in a hot foot. The second card is Steve Sachs in the iconic look, running to first base, legging out a grounder. But this time he is clutching a bloody knife. He is holding the knife, but in the picture, Steve definitely looks like he has been afflicted by some kind of knife wound. Maybe a stabbing (laughs) wound in his leg. Maybe he has stabbed himself. He's running from the Springfield police. Bert definitely looking like a fire demon. Yes, he is Bert Blylevin, Dutch god of fire. Fantastic. So this will be good fuel for your nightmares and for your Halloween parties. So we will post those in our channels. And thank you again to to Tim for your creativity and for the artwork. Now, David, let's turn to Dwayne Bice. I could not think of a spooky card for the spooky season, but I, th- I thought maybe Dwayne Boo Ice would be his Twitter <laughs> name for the month of October. But that is not the correct pronunciation of his name. Our friends over at the Bluest Tape podcast, when they were opening their pack, they came across this card. And Harvey on that podcast said he didn't know how to pronounce this name. He then said he had this card that had a weird name and a sweet mustache. His co-host did have the correct pronunciation, Bice. But Matt, you had a Twitter conversation about the pronunciation of Dwayne's last name. Yeah, I looked at this, David, and seeing the name, seeing the card, the tweet is me saying, I, for one, am going to need a pronunciation check on B-U-I-C-E. And odds that this name has three syllables, I really had no idea if it was going to be Buicy, Bucci, Buice. 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 Yeah. Italian, you'd go with Buice. If it was French, it might be Buice. Um, Buice. It, really, it's very, very difficult. And then with Dwayne or Dwayne, it, so this name could have easily had five syllables. And this is also the first card that has a lowercase letter. I think that we've looked at. I don't know that we've had. Yeah, I, I don't believe we have had a a lowercase letter in the name. It's a very odd looking 
Yes. When, when you have names that are normally in all caps, and then out of nowhere, they've got a capital D, lowercase e. And we know that the in 1988, the Tops Corporation was doing a great job with their visual artistry, so they probably had to like pay somebody just to get that lowercase letter. Oh, yeah. And needed a whole special run. Probably needed a different font altogether that they'd have to pay for for the year. So this was a big investment in Dwayne. What was your Kerning podcast? <laughs> Wait, which one do you mean, David? Do you mean Kerning Learning or do you mean Fonts of Wisdom? Well, great. Well, we've now that we've gotten all of our wordplay out of the way. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this, this, so this wasn't really a suggestion, but... When I saw the card, I thought, how do you pronounce this guy's name? And so I Googled it, and I was looking to try to figure that out. And instead, I found a really interesting story that I think Jeff on the Bluest Tape alluded to. He said that Bice had a claim to fame in the sports card world as he was one of the first of two in Upper Deck's promotional run of cards in 1988. Their first series came out in 1989, but the card number one was inexplicably Dwayne Bice. This is our fourth Angels player, and the first three were People's Most Beautiful People list, Kirk McCaskill, The Match Game's Don Sutton, and Traveling Most Interesting Man in the World, Jack Lazorko. Yeah, I would say this entire Angels pitching staff... Very high in NAR, uh, notoriety above replacement. It's been amazing stories from the starters to the relievers all the way through. I mean, you've got players that have been on David Letterman. You've got ones that are making hockey kick saves, doing the full splits to stop ground balls. And Dwayne, of those four pitchers, probably had the shortest major league career, but maybe made more money than all of them, maybe combined. (laughs) Love it. We have got quite a show, quite a story. So let's go to the front of 649. And this is a major league rookie we're looking at here. Dwayne Bice looks he looks like he's 40 years old. I don't know. He's he's in the sun. He's got a lot of chains. He's got kind of chest hair poking up out of his jersey. He's a Jay Baller type. This is quite a look. He is a 30-year-old rookie in 1987. Uh, this is not his first Topps card. He had a 1987 Topps traded card, but on the back of that card, he did not yet have any major league stats. So this this is the first card that has major league stats. There's a, a great mustache. He even has an interesting glove. It looks like a brand new glove. So this is the Angels White. Angels White with red, red letters, red and black trim. Good bronze. Good bronze action, too. Looks very tan. Now flipping to the back of 649. And yeah, David, for a rookie card, this doesn't look like any rookie card we have seen. This maybe tells us why Dwayne looks older than his years on that. <laughs> on the front of the card, he is a grizzled veteran by this point. Yeah, no doubt about it. So six feet, 185, right-handed batter and thrower. Signed by the Giants as a free agent in 1977. Born August 20th, 1957 in Linwood, California, with a home in Carson, California. And David, what you see right away is line after line after line after line of minor league baseball. There are 15 lines on this card. 
three countries. This is the first time that I have seen a country other than Canada or the United States referenced on a card. And again, this is a rookie card. There's only one line of him in the pros. So that is 1987 with the Angels. There's no fun fact, no room for a fun fact, no room for the story of the scout who signed him, which we will get to, which is an amazing story. He's born in Linwood, home of Weird Al, Big Van Vader, Duke Snyder, and Glenn Bell, the founder of Taco Bell. I was looking up the name Bice, possibly of Scottish origin, a Scottish version of the name Boyce. Also found a family in Georgia with the same name, but their history showed Dutch ancestry. Did not find anything from Duane about his family's nation of origin. Possibly Scottish, possibly Dutch. A lot of different places that that last name Bice could be from. Duane was making his home in Carson, California at this time. He, he also grew up in Carson, went to Carson High School. And as of 2021, Duane is the last player from Carson High School to play in the majors. While he was at Carson High School, he started smoking when he was 13 and took up dipping at 16 to quit smoking. And that habit lasted well into his career. He quit after he had a cheek biopsy. And he said that the pain from that biopsy was enough to convince him to quit. He said if that was the pain from just the test, he didn't want to know what cancer was like. Out of high school, Dwayne went to Cal State Dominguez Hills, go Toros. And at Cal State Dominguez Hills, according to scout George Genovese, Dwayne had a falling out with his coach, and he ended up at Los Angeles Harbor College. I had to piece a little bit of this together because there isn't it might surprise you that there isn't a great Dwayne Bice history. <laughs> There's no Sabre bio yet. I think somebody's working on it. I'm happy to help them out if they need some notes. So we're piecing this a little bit uh, together on the fly. I think after he went to Los Angeles Harbor College, he ended up at Cypress College. This is where George Genovese saw Dwayne again. And I think at this point we should maybe talk about George. Genovese had an amazing career. He played baseball in the 40s and 50s. He only played three games as a pro in 1950 for the Senators, but he played a long time in the minors, became a coach and manager in the minors, and then became the Southern California scout for the Giants from the 60s into the 90s. So he signed a lot of guys that we're going to talk about on this show. Matt Noakes, Rob Deere, Chili Davis, Jack Clark, Bobby Bonds, and many, many others. I think 200 plus players who he signed. Wow. In 1994, he was fired by the Giants as a cost-cutting measure, and immediately the rival Dodgers snapped him up, and their general manager called George one of the greatest scouts of all time. He wrote a book called A Scout's Report, My 70 Years in Baseball, and his papers and scouting reports were donated to the Hall of Fame. In 2004, at the Professional Baseball Scouts Foundation dinner, they gave their first Lifetime Achievement Award to George Genovese. During the presentation, they announced that the award would become known as the George Genovese Award. George lived until 2015 and passed away at age 93. But Dwayne owes a lot to George for his career and a lot of the places that he went. George said that he worked harder for Dwayne to get him the opportunity that he deserved than he did for any other player. He called Dwayne a skinny kid with an effective curveball and a 90-plus mile-an-hour fastball, but what impressed George the most was Dwayne's tenacity. When Dwayne met George, 
George asked him if he wanted to play professional baseball. Dwayne said, I never wanted to do anything else. That's all I ever wanted to do. George said, that's the answer I wanted to hear. He signs him to play for the San Francisco Giants. Yeah, and after signing with San Francisco, he ends up going to Great Falls for Rookie League and is used mostly as a reliever in his minor league career, which started out rough, a whip up around two and walking a lot of guys and then spends the next three seasons with the Giants in A-ball in Cedar Rapids and in Fresno. He settles down a little bit, gets his whip down in the 1.3 range. His ERA was okay. It started at 1.7 that first year in A-ball and then went up to in the three range. He's getting a lot of experience, a lot of appearances. He gets a couple starts, but he's mostly used as a reliever. And again, George Genovese comes into the picture here. After those three seasons at A-level, George warns the Giants that they could lose Dwayne in the minor league Rule 5 draft. And we've talked about the Rule 5 draft where a team can pick a player who's stashed away on a minor league roster, but they have to guarantee them a spot on the next level up. Management tells George Dwayne isn't major league material. George likes Dwayne and disagrees. He told a friend in the A's organization to look out for this guy if he's available, and the A's pick him up. They sign him. He has a breakout year at AA. He is still walking a fair number, but he gets eight wins, 15 saves, and a 2.09 ERA, and he earns a spot at AAA. So he goes from stash at single A up to AAA by 1981 in 1982. Not shown on this card. By this point, Dwayne had become adept at throwing a spitball. In one game, he struck out 14 batters in seven innings with the spitter. He said that he got to the point where he could really control that sucker. (laughs) Bice said, I could throw that spitter every pitch and put up some tremendous knucklers, but the toll on your arm is just as tremendous. And he broke his arm in 1982 throwing a spitball. After that, he said he stopped. Yeah, he said that it was the arm toll that made me stop. And then with a wink, he added, that plus the embarrassment of getting caught. (laughs) Since it's not allowed to put your spit on the ball. (laughs) A lot of people don't steal or cheat because they're afraid of getting caught, not because they think cheating and stealing are bad. Dwayne claims that that was the last time he threw a spitball. He comes back in 1983, still pretty good out of the bullpen. His strikeouts were down a little bit, but he again had an arm injury. I've seen it described as a broken elbow in 1982, and George Genovese said that broken elbow recurred in 1983. So he's recovering from injury. The A's choose not to resign him, and he signs with Cleveland in January of 1984. They release him before spring training even starts. And as I said before, George Genovese did more for Dwayne's career than anybody else. He helps him set up these tryouts with different teams. Gets him a tryout with the Astros, but no luck. Brewers management says they're interested. Dwayne shows up at their training facility and gets turned away at the door. Oh, man. He needed money. George Genovese hires him to do some roofing work. Oh, man. And, And so Dwayne waits until he gets his next chance. And we see something that we've not seen on this card... George had a connection in Mexico, and they were interested in a pitcher who was willing to go there, and so Dwayne goes to play for Tecolotes de Nuevo Laredo, 
Now they are called Tecolotes de los Dos Laredos, the Owls of the Two Laredos. It's a binational team. I mean, starting in 1985, they played both in Laredo, Texas in the U.S. and Nuevo Laredo in Mexico. In 1984, when Dwayne starts there, he's living in Laredo, Texas, driving across the border to go play in Mexico. He says the atmosphere is intense. There's fights in the stands. There's armed guards. But it was a great experience for Dwayne to get that opportunity to pitch and rejuvenate his career. He pitched well for those two seasons in Laredo. Unlike a lot of the guys that we talk about who leave the country and are kind of winding down their career. For Dwayne, it worked to leave the major league system and the the minor league structure. He was able to get some experience when he couldn't get it in the United States. He was noticed by Anaheim and gets signed as a free agent to a double-A deal. Right. So 1986, he comes back to the States to pitch in Midland, Texas, pitches in 45 games, 14 saves and a 3.45 ERA, and he's back in the minors, back getting work done. Ends up making it back to AAA in 1986. So now he goes to his third country, goes to Edmonton, and plays great in eight games, a .73 ERA in 1986. And in 87, that form continues. He gives up only one earned run in five appearances in 1987 and earns a call up to the majors as a 29-and-a-half-year-old rookie. Yeah, late April 1987. Here he is coming up to the majors, and he has an impressive rookie season. He gets a win in his third appearance, pitching three and two-thirds innings, scoreless. Gets his first major league save a week later, and he was really good. But David kind of raised some suspicions given his spitball past. Yes, some folks thought maybe this 30-year-old rookie... Maybe he's back to his spitballing ways. Dwayne laughed it off. There was never any serious allegations. I don't know if he was removed from any games for a Joe Necro-like situation. But he was the Angels' most effective reliever in 1987. He made 57 appearances, 17 saves, 109 strikeouts in 114 innings, which was an Angels' reliever record for a long time until it was uh, broken in the 2000s. This is the highest innings pitched total of his career, and opponents hit 213 against him. Yeah, in terms of war, he was second most valuable pitcher for the Angels. And we've already talked about that magic staff that the Angels had. <laughs> and most saves for a rookie throughout the entire league in 1987, and the fourth best rookie reliever in war. Did he get any rookie of the year votes? Unclear. I, I saw somewhere that he may have gotten some, like, maybe pitching Rookie of the Year votes from Sporting News. But with that great rookie class of Mark McGuire, Matt Noakes, Kevin Seitzer, there were too many other guys on that list for him to, to show up on that. 1987, not just a fantastic rookie season for Dwayne, a very, very big year in another way for Dwayne as well. In November, after the season is over, he's in Yorba Linda, California, looking for a Chinese restaurant, as you do. And he walks into a baseball card shop to ask for directions. And that decision changed Dwayne's life. We all find our salvation looking for Chinese restaurants in Southern California. <laughs> the owner of this card shop was Bill Hemrick. He recognizes Dwayne. Not sure why. 
Maybe it's the mustache. <laughs> Maybe he just saw a guy with a mustache and was like, that guy pitches for the Angels. The two get to talking. Bill asks Dwayne if he wants to come back to do a card signing. Dwayne says, sure. And they develop a friendship and discuss possible business endeavors. Bill and a partner were looking to start a baseball card company that was named after the store. The Upper Deck. Aha! They ask Dwayne for help contacting MLB and the Players Association. Dwayne agrees to help. And he said, the only thing I ever wanted to do with baseball cards is have my picture on one. It was my main goal. And he ends up on the first Upper Deck promo card along with teammate Wally Joyner. And we'll have a link to those cards. They look pretty good. Even those promotional items were glossy. They look better than these 1988 Tops cards. <laughs> and you can really see they have this little hologram. You see what would become the upper deck look of that 1989 card. I think that these came out in late 88. Pulling this up on the Jumbotron right here, David, what I remember most, of course, about the upper deck cards was the hologram on the back, the quality of the card, the smoothness of it. It didn't feel like cardboard. So the quality of the card itself, and because of the name, the upper deck, it, it felt like it was upper quality. Now, I didn't think of it as the upper deck of the bleachers, but I always associated it with the upper deck like of a ship, the high quality card. I remember them having the picture on the front and the back of the card, the glossy fronts and glossy backs, and holding these tops cards, that feel of the back of the card with these upper deck cards when they were just smooth in your hand versus the gritty cardboard flinging an upper deck you know with your two fingers to flick it across the room you could do some serious damage if you hit someone in the face you're going to you're going to ding up those corners and you don't want to ding up the corners on your 1988 promotional Dwayne Bice card definitely not definitely not it's quite a story though here david because now bice gets that meeting set up with the players association he helps to set the deal in motion the meeting is successful. The company incorporates in 1988 and a classic California story, but not a Silicon Valley story, a Southern California story. Dwayne ends up getting 12% of the Upper Deck Corporation. His dad asked him, what do you expect out of this? And Bice said, who knows? I may make $100,000 off of this thing. In his rookie season, Dwayne made $62,000. He was on the league minimum. Wally Joyner, who was the other guy involved in this, on these first promotional cards, instead of taking that stock option, he took the cash. He got $10,000. Dwayne made the right choice. Always go for the stock, because you never know what's going to happen. By 1989, the year that that first Upper Deck set comes out with Ken Griffey Jr., they are going through the roof selling like crazy. Dwayne had made $2.8 million from his stake in Upper Deck. There you go. Always get the stock options. Yeah, Wally Joyner ends up looking like a total schmo here. Wally, he didn't make the right choice financially here, but he had a little bit more cushion than Dwayne did. As we saw earlier, Dwayne was struggling to pay the bills and was doing roofing work a couple years prior to this. So this turned out really good for Dwayne. 1988, so coming off of this investment opportunity, Dwayne ha hasn't cashed in this money yet, but he did get a raise to 150000 in his sophomore season. And he struggled. 
he said that the umps weren't giving him the low end of the strike zone. And he was a forkball pitcher throwing split finger pitches. He needed that low strike. Otherwise, he's going to get eaten up. And he did. Batters hit 287 against him. His ERA ballooned to 5.88. So the Angels find another closer in Brian Harvey. Bice is asked about his troubles in August of that year. And he said, there's 260 pitchers in the major leagues, and I'm one of them. Even though I'm having an off year, I still think I'm one of the best. If I didn't think so, I'd get my butt out of here. Unfortunately, shortly thereafter, he was sent back down to Edmonton. (laughs) While in Edmonton, he's arguing balls and strikes with an umpire, and he may be shoved to the umpire. Oh, no. It earned him an ejection and a suspension, and he ended that season with a 2-4 and record, three saves, and 32 games. Yeah, not a good year in 1988. And in March 1989... He ends up getting traded. The Angels trade Bice to Toronto for Cliff Young. Dwayne pitches seven games for Toronto, has a 1-0 record with a 5.82 ERA in 17 innings. He gets sent down as pitching for AAA Syracuse and was slightly better. He was a pretty good AAA pitcher, 4-2 with a 2.47 ERA in 31 games. And then the Blue Jays granted him free agency in October of 1989. And that was it for his pro career. Closing the book, 96 games, 20 saves, 9 wins and 11 losses, 157 strikeouts and a 4.23 ERA over three seasons. So time for retirement, right? Not quite. And you said the end of his pro career, maybe the end of his major league baseball career, because Dwayne, all he ever wanted to do was play baseball, and he kept doing it. So as we discussed, at this point, he had made about $2.8 million from Upper Deck. He'd made about $200,000 from his baseball career. 1989, the end of that year, he gets released, but that was the year that Upper Deck exploded. The Ken Griffey rookie cards, packs and cases selling out of stores, and Dwayne thought that his stake might be worth more than the $2.8 million that he was paid. So he went to court. Well, his lawyer went to court. Dwayne went to keep playing baseball in Venezuela. He played winter ball. So in court, it was decided that he was owed $17 million for his stake in Upper Deck. Oh, man. Nice. Upper Deck employees called this the Bice payment, that every month they cut checks to Dwayne. Initially, it was supposed to be over the course of four years. But in that four-year period, the Major League Baseball strike happened. So Upper Deck was going through some difficulties, and they extended the, the payments out until 1998. There were some lean years there for Upper Deck, and this Bice payment was a yoke around the neck of of Upper Deck, and their employees hated it. But Dwayne got paid. On the day that Upper Deck cut its last check to Bice, they threw a party at the company headquarters. (laughs) And later that freedom, freedom from Dwayne. And later that year, at the company Christmas party. The company CEO told employees that the deal was the worst deal they had ever done. Well, it was a bad deal for them. Seems like a great deal for Dwayne. What did it do for him? Dwayne was able to buy a few nice houses. He bought one in the Reno area, also at homes in Costa Mesa and San Clemente. He was married at least once, again, piecing this together, and had at least one son named Joey. I think that Joey is a musician in the Joshua Tree area in Southern California. And Dwayne, as I said before, he, he all he ever wanted to do was play baseball. 
he bought a stake in a baseball team, the Reno Astros. This is very much uh, Brewster's Millions type of thing. (laughs) And so he keeps pitching in practice, sometimes in games, well into his 40s. It only cost him $35,000 a year to run the team. And he said it was all he ever wanted to do. He enjoyed the camaraderie of the dugout, still doing impressions that he had become famous for. Like earlier in his career, Marv Albert had Dwayne do the intros for NBC's Game of the Week in the voice of Maxwell Smart. Is that a dated Ah, reference? From Get Smart, (laughs) sure. It's dated for us even. Uh, But he also did Rodney Dangerfield, which everybody should know, no matter how old you are. (laughs) Yes. And these impressions and and Dwayne's forkball were respected in in the dugout by his younger teammates. Dwayne said, I still eat cornflakes and top ramen. It's not the money. Don't get me wrong. I don't want anybody taking it away from me. But one thing about playing in the minors until I was 30 was that I got to know who I was, and I don't feel I have to change. So this guy in the picture that we have here, this 30-year-old Dwayne Bice, he knew how to be a minor league baseball player, and that's that's what he liked. And that lifestyle and that camaraderie with his teammates was what he enjoyed about his life as a baseball player. He later coached in Germany for a bit. I, I found a reference to him coaching for a team in Germany, and I found a story about George Genovese. His papers were donated to the Hall of Fame. And there's this article with pictures of his granddaughters visiting the hall, looking over these scouting reports that their grandfather wrote. And along with the pictures of the granddaughters is this long-haired guy with a mustache, and it's Dwayne. He kept in touch with George until his death and never forgot how George helped him. He said George helped him get every job he ever had in baseball. And it is interesting to look at George's book, and the passages about Dwayne, and how much he cared about Dwayne as a person, and Dwayne's development as a player and development as a man. There's almost a father-son connection there, and it was really, as I clicked on this this picture, I was like, is that a 60-year-old Dwayne Bice, just with these papers, like he's family? And so it was really an interesting and, and touching piece about Dwayne that he would show up when George was celebrated and he showed up to the to Cooperstown to celebrate this guy who did so much for him in his career. From what I found recently, it seems like Dwayne has had a few major surgeries, maybe on his back and some health scares with cancer, but he's recovered. He seems to be enjoying life. And according to his LinkedIn, he seems to be avoiding real work. <laughs> Yeah, we found him on LinkedIn. David, he's listed as the president of I Don't Like Work Incorporated. I feel like that company probably has millions upon millions of prospective employees. When I first found this LinkedIn, you know, there can't be too many guys named Dwayne Bice, right? Like that's not a common name. I did a double take on the picture because he has long hair. He almost looks like um, the Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. And he's got this mustache. It doesn't look like this 30-year-old young man. Of course, time takes its toll on all of us. But I did a double take, and I thought, like, maybe this is a different Dwayne Bice. And then I found this pictures from the Baseball Hall of Fame. And it really, yeah, I did a double take. I was intrigued by what Dwayne is doing now. And it seems like, from what I found, he's traveling and spending time 
hanging out in his multiple homes and enjoying that $17 million that he got from Upper Deck. The fact that you found him in a picture with a case full of papers. What kind of papers? Business papers. Could definitely be a version of, of Jeffrey Lebowski. So, so David, this was, it's a heck of a story. Again, this is a player that we may not have heard of unless we had gotten those Upper Deck promotional cards back in 1989 with Dwayne Bice and Wally Joyner. But now looking into the story further, what do you think about him? I, I wouldn't have thought too much about this other than, huh, that's an interesting name. And looking back, it is, it's amazing that even back so long ago, he was saying all he wanted to do was play baseball and have his picture on a baseball card. It was all he ever wanted to do. And fate, a fateful Chinese restaurant search, a good friend who also happened to be a scout, and a good lawyer allowed him to play baseball far longer than Major League Baseball managers probably wanted him to. Well into his 40s, maybe into his 50s. It's a strange one. You have this guy who is a rookie, but I don't know that I would have, if I saw that rookie card that didn't have all these lines of stats, I would have thought this is a guy with a great career ahead of him, not realizing this is a 30-year-old man who has played 14 seasons all over the world. He was ready to take on the world of Major League Baseball in 1987, and instead he wandered into his most lasting impact on the game through a company that he was a conduit for. So what his story brings up to me is, yeah, that desire to just want to play and to never let that dream die is one that comes up so many times through these stories. And it's what I like the most in digging into these players' histories is just how much they want to keep a hold of it and ride it as long as they possibly can. But the biggest lesson I think uh, I would learn for it if I was a business person is make sure that your cap table is clean because the other owners in Upper Deck ended up paying dearly for giving away an eighth of the stock of their company. Uh, they paid the price. The other side of that, Matt, the, without Dwayne and his connection and wandering into that store and his connection to MLBPA and Major League Baseball... If he had not done the work, which he was asked to do, he would have had 12% of nothing. Yeah, that's true. Upper Deck might not even have existed as we know it if it wasn't for Dwayne Bice. So that's a good point. And it's a nice little slice of actually the baseball card business. So a really fascinating story, fascinating guy. And I'll check him out on LinkedIn Sales Navigator soon and see if I can prospect into I don't like work incorporated. I love it. Well, it's a great story and a great card. So thank you, David. And thank you to you at home for listening. If you've got a rug at home that really ties the whole room together, we would love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.